I'm Donnie Mathis, and I'm one of the pastors here at TCC, and I'm glad to be able to share with you from uh, the book of Ruth this morning. This morning we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth chapter 2. Now, as we get started this morning, I have a bit of a confession to make. I'm a sucker for a good romantic comedy. Now, I know that these movies are not a picture of real life and that they sometimes give people an unrealistic expectation about finding the one. But sometimes it's good to kind of just sit back and know the way the story's going to end. The true love is going to conquer all and everybody's going to, you know, go away happily ever after. Now, you might be surprised to recognize that this story of Ruth and Boaz in, in many ways has the, the structure and the reality of a romantic comedy. In fact, if you really read this chapter carefully, you're going to find that it's filled with, with humor and surprise and the wrong woman ending up in the end, we'll see, not to steal Brandon's thunder next week, with the right guy. This is a beautifully, artfully arranged story. And to be perfectly honest, it shouldn't surprise us that the world, in trying to build beautiful, artful stories, is always going to draw on imagery and realities that we find in the scripture because God is the giver of all truth. That God is the one who gives life. He's the one who gives love. He's the one who provides everything. And so to be perfectly honest, almost any story that you read, whether they would want to admit it or not, is going to have some religious claim. Problem is, is most of those claims are gonna be false. But what we find here in this story of Ruth and Boaz is a beautiful depiction of the greatness and the majesty of God. So let's see this story of redemption that God is going to work for in taking this woman who is the lowliest of the low and saving her life in more ways than we could ever, ever imagine. So let's begin with the setup. Every romantic comedy is going to have a bit of a setup. So the prodigal daughter, Naomi, is going to return empty. We saw this last week, and you'll notice there in chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 22, the way Matt ended last week, Notice how the chapter ends. It's a, it's a transition into what we find here. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now you'll notice there, if I were going to grade this on a paper, I would say that the writer here has been a bit redundant. But this is, this is actually really great writing. Because what the writer is trying to make very clear here is you've got a Moabite woman who's come back from Moab with Naomi. And they come to Bethlehem at the beginning of a barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, remember Elimelech, 
a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. So true to romantic comedy form, and we'll see one of my favorites here in just a second, the author lets us know that something very important is about to take place. He tells us there in chapter 2, verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So right away, we are, as we're watching this unfold, we know more about what's about to take place than the characters in the movie. Like in You've Got Mail. When Amber and I first started uh, dating, this was one of my favorite movies. In fact, in the spring, this is going to sound really ridiculous. In the spring of 2001, I went to New York with some friends and we actually went to several of the places that are in the movie. It's ridiculous, like I said. Thanks, Rodney, I appreciate it. But one of the things about this movie and many others is that there are, there are opportunities for us as those who watch the movie unfold to know more about what's going on than the characters that are involved. So you've got these two characters, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan. This is like their third movie together. And they're all pretty decent, except for Joe versus the Volcano, but that's another issue. Now, so what we've got here is they're emailing one another back and forth. And they're pretty clever with their words and they're developing this infatuation with one another while at the same time they have relationships with other, with other folks. Oh, the problem, this is the setup that we're getting. And then all of a sudden you find out that she is the owner of this little bookstore, the shop around the corner. And he's the owner of this massive conglomerate that is bringing books to the masses and putting all the mom and pop shops out of business. And so they are brought into various interactions in real life where they hate each other. And now they step away and they're writing on their computers and they're falling for one another. And it comes to this head. We're all watching this on the outside looking in and recognizing this is headed for a really interesting resolution. And he's going to meet her at a coffee shop. And he looks in and he realizes it's her. And he realizes also that part of the reason that his life is pretty difficult right now that people are picketing and protesting is because he told her to do it in an email. And so now we know, and he knows, but she doesn't know. And the rest of the story will unfold. So right away, as we see this here with Naomi, and we're told that there is this worthy man, this is a man of means, this is a man of noble character, who's a part of the clan of Elimelech. Now, why would that be important? It's important because of a practice that was a part of life in the community of Israel called leveret marriage. 
that there is a responsibility on the part of the closest family member when a husband has died and left a widow who has no children to care for her, particularly a male child. He is to take her into his family. He is to take her as his bride. And the first male child belongs and is named after the husband who's died. To continue the name of the family. And so right away here we see when no one else can see that there is hope. Now, why is that so significant? Well, think back to what Matt talked about so well last week. Ruth has come back with Naomi. And think about when we're told this is, is at the time, the beginning of the barley harvest. The one who left, think about the irony here. The one who left the house of bread, Bethlehem, when there was no bread, if you think back to our time in Judges, this is an indication that they left and fled during a time when they're being oppressed in that cycle of sin and now they're receiving the just retribution of God. But think about what's happened here. Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, has fled to the pagan nations for care. Naomi embodies a parable that Jesus would tell in Luke chapter 15. She is the prodigal returned. She's gone off to a far country with her family to find hope, to find food, to save her family. And in reality, she comes back from the far country and has literally lost everything. She returns beaten and broken. And you remember the response of the community. Is this... Naomi, maybe with a little bit of derision, maybe you could tell by her clothing as a widow and the look on her face, all that going to the far country has cost her. And look at her response. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Notice, she's blaming this on God. This is what happens when you rebel against the king. You know the curses of the covenant. And she's saying it's all God's fault. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? But the author wants us to know there, look in that verse, that all hope is not lost. There is no situation that goes beyond the reach of the might and the majesty and most of all the grace and covenant faithfulness of our God. Nothing, no amount of rebellion can go beyond the reach of God's grace, even going to Moab. So look at what happens next. The plot's going to thicken a bit. 
Ruth is going to make a request of her mother-in-law to go out into the fields to glean. Now, gleaning is a, a very interesting thing that we're going to examine here in just a second. But let's read what she says. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain in whose sight I will find favor. So she's, she's gonna go out and she's hopeful, she's trusting that God is going to give her favor and someone's going to allow her to eat or to gather the gleanings and they're gonna survive. Because it's essentially these two women with nothing against the world. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Notice we're told that the second time. So to get an understanding of what's going on here, let's go back in our Bibles a little bit to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Now in Leviticus chapter 19, we're in the midst of a section where the law is explaining how it is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so here in Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse um, 9, this is going to be articulated. And it's going to conclude at the end of the section with you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In verse 18. Look at what happens in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So as you're harvesting, if you were to drop grain upon the ground, there is a stipulation in the law that you're not to bend over and pick it up. This is God's gracious provision for someone else. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. And guess what? Ruth is both. And then notice the last word. I am the Lord your God. God is declaring his kingship over his people, but also his care. The fact that you were able to leave the corners of the field unharvested and the fact that you were not to bend over and pick something up that you dropped is saying, I trust God, the king of the universe, to provide everything that I need. And if in the course of work I were to drop something, I can leave it there because I know my God will provide. And in Deuteronomy, we see a very similar thing as this is recounted as they go into the land in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. Let's turn over there. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You leave this 
because you are confident of the blessing of God. The blessing of the covenant is that he would give you more food, more uh, olives, more grapes than you could ever, ever imagine. So this is a demonstration of faith. But notice how it goes on. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Notice three times in this paragraph. And here's why. Verse 22. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. You see, even in their actions, on an everyday basis, in the most, what we might call mundane things of life, as they went about their business, the children of Israel were to be reminded and to remember that things weren't always this great. That the vats weren't always full that the cisterns weren't always filled with water and that we weren't always fat and happy. We were slaves in Egypt and God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm did signs and wonders in Egypt. He conquered the Egyptian gods. He conquered the Pharaoh. He showed himself to be the great and only God. And even in the mundane things of life, we are to remember the great salvation that our God has given. And we can be so confident in him that we don't have to bend up and pick up anything that we've dropped. We don't have to beat our trees twice. We don't have to worry about the vineyard. God is going to provide for us in super abundance because he is the God who is always faithful to the covenant. Always. But here's the problem. Notice that she has to ask her mother-in-law, can I go do this? Because it's very clear. All we have to do is think back to what we've learned in Judges this far and where it's going, that this is not the safe place that it's supposed to be. Not every landowner in Israel is going to allow a sojourning widow who is the poorest of the poor to go out into the field to pick up anything and when she does, to be safe. And so she asks her mother-in-law, can I go? And she basically, when, when Naomi says you can go, this is a demonstration, this is as bad as it can get. This is rock bottom. This is in many ways like the prodigal coming to himself, this is Naomi's acknowledgement that we're, we're done and we're dead, if not for a great work of God. And so that leads us then to the funnest part of a romantic comedy, what they call the meat cute. How is it that the teller of the story is going to bring these two individuals who may not ever come into contact with one another otherwise, how are their paths going to intersect so that their lives can change? Like in the movie Serendipity where they reach for the same glove at the same time and it's the only one left. 
You would say it's chance. But it's not a chance. In fact, in the previous verse, we've already been told that this is going to happen. Look at that last phrase there, or the first part. So she went out, in verse 3, so she went out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And then that phrase, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. In, in, in the Hebrew text, it literally says, as we've got that subheading there, her chance chanced upon Boaz's field. Her chance chanced. We would say it was just dumb luck, as luck would have it. But the author's trying to say here, recognize this is not her chance chanced. This is God put her there. And so even though here the name of God is not even used, God is bringing these two people together. And so here we're going to find hope in a person. So look at what happens in verses four through seven. Boaz is going to arrive at the field. Now we don't know how long this has been going on, how long Ruth has been there, but we see what happens. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Now, now, now take note of this, what this is saying to us here about this man. This is not normal. These people are his servants, maybe even bordering on his slaves. And he comes into the field and he greets them with respect and kindness. And he calls out to them and says, the Lord, the covenant making God be with you. And notice their response is not, oh, there's that jerk. They respond in kind. The Lord bless you from Numbers chapter 6. This blessing that would be spoken by the children of Israel to one another, that the Lord would cause his face to shine upon them and give them peace. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Who's her husband? What family is she from? He notices her for whatever reason, as chance would have it, I guess. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Where's she from? Moab. And we don't like those people. They don't like us and they worship other gods. And basically the undertone is, is what is she doing here? She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Notice that she has come. She has admitted that she needs help. She needs the kindness of a superior in the culture to invite her in, one with authority to show grace. And notice that even though she had every right as a widow of Israel, although no one would really want to recognize that because she's Moab. She's not going to presume to walk into a field to glean because she knows what might happen. 
So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So she's there. She's been working. She's been allowed into the field. And notice that this place is different. As chance chanced, she showed up at maybe one of the few fields in all of Israel where a woman would not be taken advantage of. God has providentially guided her to this portion of this field for this opportunity for both of them because they both need flourishing. She is the poorest of the poor. She is vulnerable in every way. She has no power at all and he has power, but he's alone. He's kind, but he's not flourishing as God intended. So look at what happens. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Now think about that for just a moment. He's acknowledging, first of all, that he's way older than she. Way older. But he's calling her a member of the family. She's not a sojourner. He didn't call her Moabitess, daughter. And then notice what he says. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but cling to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. So what he says here is essentially when he tells her don't go to any other field is not to be rude to Boaz, but kind of a cheesy Christian pickup line as it were. You've been looking for a place of safety, you look no further. It would be this era's equivalent to hi, my name's Will, God's will, or something like that. You don't need to go anywhere else this is the place for you. Because he recognizes that he is someone who can provide protection and life, both for Ruth and Naomi. Because you see, he is a possessor of power, is gonna put himself in a place of vulnerability where his reputation in the community is going to be put at risk to protect the powerless and it's going to lead to his flourishing and to her flourishing and frankly, is gonna demonstrate the lengths to which God is going to go to protect his name. So stay close. And notice what he goes on to say, and it frankly reveals a bit about this era in Israel. Have I not charged the young men to not touch you? I've made it very clear that you are not to be bothered. As one commentator says, this is the first sort of sexual harassment policy 
you find any, anywhere in the ancient Near Eastern world, right here. Don't bother her. Don't lay a hand on her. Don't strike her. Don't assault her. This is a place of safety for someone who knows no safety. Well, why? Is he protecting her and not just protecting her, providing for her, telling her you can go drink the water that these men have gathered and brought from town to the fields? Why? Well, we see it in the next set of verses. Whoops, let's go back. Look what happens in verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? Why have I received grace? I'm, I'm unworthy. that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. And it's an oddity of the language as I was studying this week that the word notice and the word foreigner come from the same root. The point is everybody knows who I am. Everybody watches. Everybody sees I'm the outsider. Why am I receiving your grace? Look at what Boaz answered. All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. In fact, it seems like it's been repeated over and over and over again. It's the, it's the talk of the town. Can you believe that they came back? The audacity. Can you believe she brought that Moabitess that her sorry dead son he got what he deserved married he's heard it a lot and how you left now notice what he says listen to the phrase of this and see if you can think about where you might have heard this before how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before She's repeating the journey of the first Gentile who heard the call of God. Listen to what Genesis 12, 1 says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Guess what? She's from all the families. But then notice what Genesis 12, 4 says. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. He left father, and he left family. He left everything to go. And that's what she has done. Just like Father Abraham. And he's revered. But look at how it goes on even from there. And we see this next phrase. Now, I'll be honest, I saw this verse on a greeting card a few years ago. And I thought it was what we would really like to say sometimes in a greeting card, kind of passive aggressive. Because they didn't have the verse reference on it. It makes all the difference in the world. Context is really important. The Lord repay you for what you have done. 
Now, normally when we see this, it's like, yeah, you're going to get yours, right? The Lord repay you for what you've done. Almost everywhere else in the scriptures that we see this, this is the last thing you want. And guess what? That's what everybody in town thought had happened. The Lord had repaid them for what they had done. They had gone down there and they had died and she has come back here with her tail between her legs and she's got nothing. She's got no family. She's destitute. She's got exactly, no. No. The Lord give you grace for the covenant faithfulness that you have shown to a mother-in-law to come with her, that her God would be your God. Even as it seems her mother-in-law has doubted her God. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord. Notice that everything is happening here is God at work, the God of Israel. And then notice this next phrase that he uses. It comes from Deuteronomy 32 in describing the way in which God took Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them out. It's, it's repeated over and over and over again in the Psalms. This beautiful picture of God placing his wings over his people and becoming their refuge and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under the wings of the one true and living God who is sheltering you, who is pouring out his lavish grace. You're not just my daughter, you're his. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. In fact, she says, I'm lower. I'm the lowest of the low, and you have shown me grace. And isn't this a picture of what God does? God fills the emptiness of broken, ruined sinners when they realize they are the lowest of the low. And so he begins this process of filling the emptiness that is Ruth's life. Look in verse 14. And at mealtime, some time has passed, the day has come to a close. Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. Notice he serves her. He's invited the outsider who's been far off to sit at the table and he serves. And she ate until she was satisfied. This one who has known hunger and thirst and is here in desperation, Boaz gives her dignity on the other side of this desperation. And she is satisfied and she has more than enough. More than enough. And then, when she rose to glean, 
Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Let her go wherever she wants to go. And notice what he says. And by the way, pull out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. So as you're walking along, intermittently, just pull some stuff out and drop it on the ground, you know, by accident. And don't rebuke her for picking it up. Now, what we've had happen here is kind of like this other movie we have referenced. It's from 1967. A movie called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Not who the parents of this young lady had thought when they heard that she was going to marry a doctor. And the comedy that arises in their prejudice to one another in multiple ways. His parents to her family, her family to him is shocking, particularly to a 1967 audience. But it must still resonate because the movie was remade a few years ago, not nearly as good as this one, by the way. That's what's happened here. All of Boaz's people gather to eat at the end of the day, and here is Ruth over here. She's a Moabitess. She's outside, and he says, come and sit down at the table. And he provides for her, and she eats. And notice what's happening. He is putting himself at risk. This is a man of noble character. This is a man of wealth and status and prestige in the community. And he is inviting this outcast to sit at his table and to dine. And she is filled to overflowing. You can only imagine what the gossip was around the well the next day. He's put himself in a place of real vulnerability so that both he and she can know real life. And we're seeing here that God is at work in these, what we might think are mundane events with, with the lowest of the low to show the way that he is moving heaven and earth to accomplish his purpose of fulfilling his promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And guess what? This family too. This family too. So let's see how it ends. Even mother-in-law begins to see the light. The empty one, the bitter one, sees hope. Look in verse 17. So she gleaned in the field in the evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley, about 22 liters, a lot. Pretty good day's work. And apparently somebody really liked to drop stuff on the ground. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and wondered what in the world has happened. She also brought, uh, brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Apparently she had brought the leftovers home. 
This was far more than her mother-in-law could have ever asked or imagined. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Notice that word again. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She realizes I am not alone. I am not bitter. There is a God who reigns in heaven who hasn't forgot the living or the dead. God is going to bring life out of our darkness and our death and our destitution in this guy. And Ruth is probably like, huh? Naomi said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, here is the problem that might get, is going to get revealed in the future. Because all good romantic comedies have to have something that could keep the loving couple apart. And Ruth the Moabite said, notice how every opportunity... It just keeps getting hammered in. She not from here. She doesn't belong, but she does. That's what God's grace is all about. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall cling to my young men, stay close to them until they have finished all my harvest. So it's not just today. This is gonna be every day. This is the abundance that we need. All of our problems have been answered by God. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Notice, this is, this is a safe place. God has worked, provided, protected in the midst of chaos in Israel, in the midst of rebellion in Israel, where if a woman were to go out and do what the law says she is legally allowed to do because they were slaves in Egypt, she is taking her life into her own hands. God has brought her through in safety and in peace and protected her to bring her to flourishing. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lives with her mother-in-law. A redemption story, not yet complete. But as we close today, we come to the Lord's table. And I think in God's providence, as chance chanced, this sermon fell this day because what Boaz does, and if our ushers could come, our servers could come and begin to pass out the meal, what happens here is exactly what Jesus does with his disciples and what he does today with us. There is nothing that is in us 
that makes us worthy or able to approach the table where we should be is far off. But Jesus in his grace, in his mercy, and in his everlasting kindness says to ruined, lowly, the lowest of the low sinners, there is a place to sit at my banqueting table because I am the redeemer. I am the one who will bring you from the death and degradation and destruction that your sin has brought, that I will bring you from the just wrath that you deserve, and I will bring you to life. Because I have gone to a cross, I have died for your sins, and God raised me up from the dead. And because of that fact, because I took the wrath that you deserve, you can sit at the table through repentance and faith. So this morning, as the elements are being passed out, I want us who know the Lord to, to just ponder for a moment how the one who was rich beyond all bounds, for our sake became poor, the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage. And he was humbled by becoming like us, taking on flesh and walking in obedience to a cross. drinking the cup of our sin to the full. So as we hold in our hand the, the bread and the cup, let's ponder for a moment the suffering that he endured so that we could be invited to this table. Let us rejoice in the fact that the one whose body was broken and beaten and placed in a tomb, let us rejoice that he did not stay in that tomb but that God raised him from the dead, that God exalted him to the highest place. And he reigns and rules from on high today so that we can, we can know that 
that the labor that we do in the Lord is, is not in vain. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that, that doesn't know Jesus, I pray that, that, that this picture of what has been done for us would cut them to the heart. That their lives would be changed. Lord, as we partake, I pray that you would work in ways that we could never expect, in ways that are more than we could ever ask or think. We beg this in Jesus' name. Amen.